Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast. We can discussion of affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you this week from the campus of the U.S. Naval War College at Narragansett Bay in Newport, Rhode Island. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by the man who stands athwart the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation yelling, Stop! Our own <laughs> Jeremy Goldcorn, a.k.a. Jimmy. Jeremy, man, how are you? Doing very, very well indeed. My, my first trip to Rhode Island, and it's, it's lovely. Yeah, we, we were given a tour of the, the U.S. Naval History Museum here, and that was, that was amazing, uh, really cool. I'll post some pictures that, that I just snapped while we were there. Very cool stuff. Some of you may recall that a couple of months ago, maybe like six months ago, I recommended a book on this show called Meeting China Halfway. How to Defuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry by Lyle Goldstein. It's a remarkable book that I sincerely hope you will read uh, that will be read not only in U.S. policy circles, but also by Chinese foreign policy analysts and decision makers as it offers what, to me at least, some of the, the most informed and courageous and original thinking in the bilateral relationship that I've come across. Indeed, the, the word that I guess comes up most often when I raise the book with people, and I'm, I've been doing that very often with various China Watcher types, uh, is the word original. To me, that's what's most important. This, this does more than just urge empathy and enhanced mutual understanding. It actually offers a set of concrete proposals of cooperation spirals, which are counterposed to, indeed, which are intended to help us to escape the escalation spiral that we now seem very much trapped in. So we're extremely pleased today that Dr. Goldstein could make time to speak with us about his book, Dr. Goldstein Lyle. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kaiser. Jeremy, I'm, I'm really uh, glad to welcome you here to Newport and the Naval War College. It's, it's an honor to uh, speak with you and talk about my book with you. Great, man. Well, before we plunge in, I wanted to say a very big thank you to J.D. Christensen, a listener to this show, a naval officer, and uh, very much a gentleman uh, for helping make this happen. J.D. was an Olmsted scholar who studied in China with that program, which uh, offers active duty U.S. military officers a year of language and training and two years of study abroad. And with JD's help, we plan down the road to do a show with participants in that program and to talk more broadly about mill-to-mill or military-to-military relations between the U.S. and China. So I should note that the opinions expressed by our guest today uh, are not the opinions of the United States Navy or of the U.S. Naval War College, but his own opinions. So uh, let's get started and talk about Lyle's book. Let's do that. And I, I'd like to start it off by asking it. I was really surprised to read a book that advocates any kind of compromise, even to the extent of recognizing Chinese spheres of influence coming from uh, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College um, and, of course, a, a leading authority on Chinese naval power. Lyle, is it fair to say that you may have been banking on a bit of the kind of only Nixon could go to China credibility? 
And also, uh, how do your how do your U.S. military colleagues respond to your arguments? Do they think you've drunk some kind of commie Kool Aid? <laughs> <laughs> uh, very well put, Jeremy. I have actually uh, been very encouraged to see that while many of my colleagues do not agree with my argument, that they are uh, giving me a fair listening. They are encouraging me to proceed and. Uh, indeed, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, military people, I think, around the world, they are professionals. Uh, and a lot of them, uh, they take the profession of arms very seriously and devote themselves to it, but they try to remain apolitical. And uh, that's one thing I really admire about uh, military folks. And uh, I work with them, you know, day in, day out. They're my students, uh, so I have a good feeling for their approach. And um, the truth is, well, of course, they, they understand the need to uh, prepare our country, you know, for whatever happens, whatever contingency. And yet, uh, like I said, they want to maintain an apolitical disposition. And so uh, they, they're open to listening to uh, creative ways to improve uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China. So, you know, I would say, again, working with the U.S. military as I do, people are uh, one, one might be shocked to see how many open minded people there are. You know, in fairness, I do. Uh, other kinds of work for uh, the U.S. Navy, too. You're doing some work on Russia right now, in fact, right? That's right. I do a whole variety of, of different kinds of work. So this is really just one part of my portfolio. But You're a China specialist. Can you talk a little bit about your, your training, actually, in China? I mean, you speak and read Chinese. and <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Uh, hopefully, you won't put me to the test too much uh, here at Kaiser. But I, I have... Uh, Trained in China, not as, as much as I, uh, you know, we could all be trained better, let's say. Uh, but I spent a succession of summers in China, and I came to Chinese studies late. I, I really first trained as a Russia specialist and lived in Moscow and traveled all over. Uh, sort of glimpsed China, actually, from the uh, peaks in Central Asia and in the, in the Tian Shan and thought, I, I, this is an area of the world I need to study. I became really interested in East Asia in graduate school. So... Uh, I came late to it, but uh, I, I have uh, really enjoyed studying Chinese, learning Chinese. Um, I, I read a lot, although the truth is I, I read really kind of uh, slowly in, like the rest of us. <laughs> well, I, I read in professional areas, so I'm, I'm quite good at reading about diplomacy and defense issues. But if you had me reading about art and architecture, I'd be completely lost. So that's, you know, I some of the younger folks I know, specialists are training for um, living in China for years and years. And I wish I could have done that, but I, I did not. But I have a bit of an ethic when I go to China. I try to go to China at least once a year. Uh, but I always try to get around to different parts of China. I mean, we all know you, you can, we wouldn't try to understand China by just spending time in Beijing or Shanghai. So I try to get out and about a lot and, and uh, see a lot of the country and talk to a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a, it's a very good policy. So, Lyle, maybe you could talk a little bit about how your thinking uh, on the bilateral relationship has evolved over the years and how you, know, you, you arrived at the basic position that you advocate in, in your book. And maybe if you want to just sketch what that basic position is, I mean, we've, we've suggested already, and the title of your book suggests it's meeting China halfway. It's, it's uh, a, a policy that I think would fall into the more dovish camp, that would fall into a sort of a, a more compromise or, or a nod to the new kind of geostrategic realities of China's rise? I mean, I like the way you put the question that is, you know, where did, how did I come to this position? Because it really did take some time and um, an evolution in my thinking. And, and um, really, I'm, I'm a naval analyst, a defense analyst. My training before, you know, many regional specialists, I started as regional specialists, I started studying military strategy 
defense policy issues. And really, that's how I started to go about my research on China, uh, studying the nitty gritty of Chinese naval development, beginning with torpedoes and sea mines and, and kind of seemingly kind of mundane aspects of the military balance. However, I think the more that I um, delved into that, it became uh, quite convinced that what's going on here, it really is a, a very dramatic a revolution in kind of China's military capabilities. You know, there are parallels. I think a good parallel, for example, is the United States in the late 19th century was sort of feeling its oats. It was, uh, let's say, newly interested in acquiring a a, uh, formidable fleet. You know, this is the way I see China's uh, Navy and military generally developing uh, in a very advanced direction. So as I was watching the military balance unfold and studying the evolution of Chinese capabilities, I became more and more convinced, as, as many of us who look at the military balance reach this conclusion that the the military scenarios are really so so awful, so devastating for both countries that really it's very important that people stand up and try to advocate for compromises and uh, bring creativity to that effort so that, of course, that these uh, awful uh, weapons are not used. So my thinking evolved toward, okay, how can we reach Understanding that China is growing in power, that its capabilities are formidable, that that the United States is in is in no position to tell China how we're going to you know order the Asia Pacific, we just can't do that. There probably was a time where we could do that, but that's no longer the case. So how do we reach this new order? Uh, it's going to take a series of compromises. So in my view, then the question becomes, well, what kind of compromises? And that's what I try to do with the book: is lay out in a whole variety of different arenas. And really, it's, it's extraordinary when we, one thinks about it, how many areas that U.S.-China relations touch. I mean, I've been asked a few times, you know, well, why don't you talk in the book about the Arctic at all? Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a legitimate question. U.S.-China relations are pertinent to the Arctic. I didn't really address it because I was busy addressing other things like the Korean Peninsula or how the U.S. and China could cooperate in Africa, say, where there's actually been some impressive cooperation. So, you know, really, the, to me, it's a extraordinary intellectual challenge to how do we kind of find that space for um, common ground where we can uh, reach toward um, solutions that are acceptable to both countries. It's, you know, it's a, it's a great challenge. And, uh, you know, we know that in some areas it's going to be a lot harder than in others. So Mm -hmm. I I tried not, I wasn't shy. You know, I tried to take on the hardest issues like the Japan U.S.-China Triangle, which I think is is kind of fraught with difficulty or the Korean Peninsula, which seems to be, uh, in my view, is We don't discuss that issue enough, but U.S.-China relations are the key to unlocking uh, peace and security in the peninsula. Most people realize that. The question is, okay, now how do we, what are the next steps then? So, um, you know, there are nine separate issues that you take on in the book. Uh, Taiwan, uh, the economic relationship, the environment, the Middle East, competition in the developing world, Japan, Southeast Asia, uh, the Korean Peninsula, and India, if I recall. And you offer uh, reciprocal cooperation spirals uh, for each of these. Could we talk through one or two of, uh, of these issues so you can give our listeners a sense of how your idea of a co- cooperation spiral actually works? Well, thanks. If I um, can tell you a little bit about how the spirals work, generally the idea, of course, is that, um, I mean, at some level, all of these compromises uh, involve, you know, grand bargains, kind of rather giant leaps of faith on both sides to assure uh, both Washington and Beijing that that its uh, major interests will be respected. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, I think 
one reason I'm, I think these spirals are generally feasible is that in each case, the steps, well, of course, they depend to some extent on one another. There's, each one is planned to, to really be in the interests of, to, to follow that country's national interest. Uh, in other words, they, they, uh, in some ways, the, the compromise steps can be looked into, at into, independently, although I think the most preferable course is that they're interactive. Yeah, they um, interlock. Yes. And they, uh, they, they escalate, right? I mean, that, that is, they start with sort of the, the easier ones for each side to make in the idea that they sort of build trust on, on through, through having executed on, on some of the more manageable steps, and then they get more ambitious as you, as you move along. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So they, they really depend a lot on, on uh, gradual moves. I mean, like, again, we cannot leap into a grand bargain. We need to take some steps in a preliminary way to kind of start to build trust uh, and and some of these moves, admittedly, are are kind of symbolic, uh, but you know symbolism is a huge part of politics. So we have to understand that it's uh, these gestures are are incredibly important. So just to walk through the Taiwan uh, spiral in in some of the preliminary steps, for example, and most of the spirals, I will say, be do begin with an American move. Although, and I, I receive some criticism here and there about, you know, why should the Americans start the spirals? And my, my honest view on that is that it's, uh, I mean, I think there are good reasons why the United States should probably initiate these spirals, and I can talk about those. However, in my view, it, it in some ways, it doesn't matter, actually, which side. And, and China may even be more disposed toward uh, this approach of a, of a kind of step-by-step set of bargains. I think the spirals can still work, no matter who starts them. But to turn to the Taiwan uh, question, I think I envision uh, some sort of limited reduction of U.S. forces on Guam. I've thought for a long time that even well before the pivot that Guam was a kind of already recognized among Chinese strategists as a kind of focal point of U.S. uh, strategic hedging against China. Uh, And I do feel that we could argue, given a lot of progress in cross-strait relations, that because of that, the, that the United States could consider some reduction of forces on Guam. And there I mostly was talking about ground contingents, which, from my understanding, are um, already overstressing a very small island in any case. So, so Guam faces a, a major problem there. So I think these, the kind of reductions I'm talking about are quite feasible in the short term, especially as we look, down, look at some kind of drawing down of, of uh, marine forces on Okinawa, too. Well, how could China then take a step to support that initiative? And I think one of the things that China could do, China has talked about developing military-to-military ties, and indeed there have been some limited contacts between um, different security forces on the mainland and Taiwan. However, those have been, I think, too limited, and thus far the mainland seems to insist on the certain preconditions. But I think there is, and I present in the book, some evidence that China has considered that maybe the preconditions could be dropped to favor just starting these relations and trying to get them going. And I think that would be a very positive response. Mm. From there, I advocate that Washington uh, close the military office of the AIT, the American Institute on Taiwan. Uh, I, I happen to know some of the background of how that office was set up. It was set up relatively recently, and I think it was a kind of break with the current U.S. policy on Taiwan, and I think that would show a good intention to uh, fr- emanating from Washington. And so I think that Beijing probably could meet that with a pullback in the missiles, uh, which has been talked about for a long time. So that would be my m- next step. So th- there are a lot of these kind of 
more limited steps. But I think on Taiwan, you know, in my view, we need to go toward larger steps, uh, and that would include treaty negotiations about uh, final status, which I think in some ways, uh, you know, it could be argued that Washington is not going to sit at that table, so it, it really can't make that decision. But in my view, and I argue this throughout the book, that I think Washington has tremendous influence in all the capitals in the Asia-Pacific. So whether it's Tokyo or Manila or Taipei, I am quite sure that significant American pressure could help to bring about a more, um, let's say, more flexibility, more willingness to talk. And I, I would like to see China, if Taipei would go ahead with that, I think that China could offer certain uh, limitations on its own military capability to assure Taiwan of its good intentions. And here I speak mostly about amphibious capabilities, because really that, to me, is the nightmare scenario for Taiwan, right? It's an all-out invasion. Right. actual PLA, like rolling up in amphibious vehicles. And, right, and, 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 and right, well, landing. well, a lot of military strategists have dismissed that scenario for years. Increasingly, it's one that, that is... Um, is more and more real. I hate to say that. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who watches the Chinese Navy very closely, and they uh, just in the last decade they have uh, built several very advanced uh, amphibious attack ships. They're wielding for you know we don't think about this a lot, but using attack helicopters and these kind of novel forms of uh, amphibious warfare. So what was uh, joked about as the million man swim uh, a decade ago uh, is more and more something that Taiwan will have to worry about, but shouldn't have to. And so I, I think we can make Chinese amphibious capability, amphibious meaning the, the ability to, to invade the island, part of the bargain. And I think some mainland restraint in that respect could be absolutely part of the bargain. But I do think most the most critical final steps in in the spiral that I discuss concern American arms sales, and I think that has to be part of that. Going way back, I think the United States had made some uh, commitments uh, during the early '80s uh, that it would not, you know, undertake arms uh, sales on a large scale. And, and by the way, I think that the Obama administration has um, has employed significant restraint on the arms sales issue. Uh, however, I think we can go further, and I think that in the end, you know, as a as a the last step toward this compromise, I think that arms sales could be uh, uh, could be essentially cut off, but eliminated altogether. Yes, uh, uh, but then I think that would maybe be met by a, a mainland a compromise to to take the use of force off the table, uh, which. The mainland has been reluctant to do, but I think that could be um, one of the final points. But I think it's worth saying that I think Beijing is already on record saying that it would not uh, transfer any PLA or, or CCP personnel to the island as part of the compromise. So I think that's a key plank. Uh, you know, I want to note that, of course, we have to be concerned with enforceability of these ideas and the sequencing of the steps and so forth. But uh, to me, that's manageable, and we should expect sort of backsliding as part of the political process. But I, I strongly believe that under uh, President Ma, that the cross-strait relationship went in a, a very um, strongly a, positive, a very direction, positive yeah. direction. And I think the United States needs to uh, grasp that kind of opportunity that that, uh, if you will, that the cross straits provided. Um, I called well, it in the... May I interrupt yeah. and yeah, ask ahead. a question? Just your book was published in 2015 before the Taiwan election that saw the PPP's Tsai Ing-wen uh, become president. And just in the weeks 
uh, before we were recording this podcast, there's been a noticeable and public worsening of, of relations uh, across the Straits. Um, uh, does, does any of this make you think that some of the ideas in your book, or at least this particular one, may be a little unrealistic? Or does this, has this changed at all the way you look at, at uh, the, the Taiwan cooperation spiral? You know, I think that it's a very challenging set of circumstances. And on Taiwan, you know, my sense is, and I'm, I'm no Taiwan expert, but I do feel that the people naturally are reluctant to move at, at, at any level away from the status quo. So these are, you know, these are really very hard choices. And, you know, most people day to day, they don't want to think about the military balance. They don't want to think about the future of cross-strait ties. They're thinking about their jobs and their, you know, their economic, you know, putting bread on the table for their kids and, and where um, they're going to get their next paycheck. I mean, that's, you know, what most people around the world think about all the time. So when, when you have these kind of surveys that say, you know, well, would you consider, move, you know, what do you think of cross-strait ties or who, who are you going to support? I mean, absolutely, this is kind of a rebuke to, to the cross-strait rapprochement. No question about that. It's a setback. I think Beijing best approach is going to be kind of restrained and, the, and Beijing, you know, realizes that. But I, I don't doubt, though, however, that there's going to be a more, how to put it, uh, I, I expect to see a reemergence of a kind of coercive approach, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think people on Taiwan are, and the leadership there, Tsai Ing-wen and so forth, are, are also... Look, she's an old veteran of, of cross-straits relations. I mean, she headed the, uh, the Taiwan side of the delegation for, for many years, right? Yeah, I, I'm not well versed on Tsai, but I think, yeah, I mean, from what I can tell, she's she's uh, going to be somewhat restrained on this. I, I think the kind of compromise I'm advocating is is probably, you know, could be said to be even still decades out. But it does involve some recognition on the American side that, that first of all, America is a key player here. We can't just say, oh, they'll figure it out. I don't think, you know, I just don't think that's true. Uh, but also that there is a bit of urgency here. That is, the, the military balance has shifted quite decisively. And I'll tell you, you know, I look at the military balance myself. I interact with other people who do, and I talk to all kinds of audiences here. I don't see a lot of Americans saying that they're, you know, sure that, that the United States is ready to, um, to spill blood for, you know, for a kind of independent Taiwan. Not at all. Quite the opposite. So, you know, to me, as a, as a, a, a real scholar of Taiwan, I know well, put it uh, recently to me, he said, we shouldn't wait for a Taiwan crisis to try to solve these issues. The time to move, to make progress on this most difficult of questions of Taiwan is to, is to take action now when, when we're not in a crisis, when tempers are not flaring, nationalism is not driving leaders to kind of extreme positions. Mm. So we, we need to start moving step by step towards some set of compromises. And, and like I said, in general, I'm very encouraged by the cross-strait ties, you know, by the flood of tourists across the Taiwan Strait and so forth. I think on the mainland, you have, I think, generally more reasonable viewpoints toward Taiwan. At the more they go there, it's not surprising that they like what they see and so forth. So I, despite the election, I remain reasonably positive. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, we can't just say, well, we're just going to keep trading and, uh, you know, trade agreements and travel and tourism, and that will solve the issue. We need some hard-headed thinking about the meaning of, of the military balance. And, and part of what that dictates is that, that Beijing's leverage is increased. And, and there has to be some, at some level, some rethinking uh, from the American point of view.
Well, we asked you to, 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 you know, sketch one of these out. Just give our listeners an idea of what sorts of, of, of proposals were included in these cooperation files. And as you suggest, you have 10. Uh, each of them has sort of 10 uh, back and forth reciprocal steps. So that, that's, that's a lot. Concretely, though, of course, you know, these may not uh, ultimately be, I mean, it's, it's not an all or nothing package. What you're endorsing more is this approach, right, of what you'll call a sort of reciprocal compromise. And then I think that's a very, very uh, profitable approach to, to be taking. I, I was, I was curious though, in, in the final 10, uh, which are more generally about the U.S. China bilateral relationship, you actually do talk about a couple of specifically military rather than civilian or diplomatic moves that each side could take. Uh, you talk about the U.S., for example, eliminating or cutting back significantly on the conventional prop, prompt global strike or CPGS program. What, what is that? I wasn't familiar with that. What is the conventional prompt global strike program? And, and, and why is it of such concern to Beijing? And why is this a, a chip that we might trade with China in the interest of diffusing tension? Oh, thanks, Kaiser. It's, uh, I can see you taking a close look at this. And, and this is the kind of uh, question I like to see people grappling with the actual substance of the proposals. Is, it gets me excited because I think, you know, to me, that's how we're going to make concrete progress in this relationship is talking about real, uh, you know, more or less con- real issues, concrete yeah. proposals, yeah. issues. That program is one of, of really great concern to China. I've, in the book, I uh, produce some evidence to show uh, just how much concern you have on the Chinese side. The idea is how do you um, take old weapons that haven't been of much use and try to repurpose them so that they can um, be used for to address modern problems? Well, what's a modern problem in the, in the post-9-11 world in the, during the war on terror and so forth? One of the problems is how could you hit a target very quickly? Even if you didn't have other options available, whether a bomber or a cruise missile, you could even use weapons that we only thought were used in the Cold War, you know, even a intercontinental uh, ballistic missile or these, these weapons. But if you put a conventional warhead on that, that these, they could be used in that way. So it's sort of using these older weapons, legacy systems for a new mission. But while that may sound um, intriguing from a kind of military strategy point of view, we see that it has real complications for the U.S.-China relationship. And uh, there, there are other technologies involved as well. I mean, even now we're talking a lot about hypersonic weaponry. These, these are, China is developing quite a bit. Of- yeah, China is developing, Russia is developing. I mean, this is part of, in my view, part of the active arms race that's ongoing. I mean, that really is hypersonic, presumably because they can defeat anti-ballistic missile systems and things like that, right? Yes, uh, but hypersonic weaponry, as I understand it, and, and I'm not really expert in those systems, but they can hold conventional warheads or nuclear warheads. So, I mean, it's actually very, uh, very, very destabilizing. To my estimate, you know, the United States is uh, clearly remains the most, you know, most powerful country in the world, certainly from a military perspective. And in that will continue to be the case. It has the largest nuclear arsenal and so forth. So this program maybe is kind of a nice to have, but it's not, to me, it's not appropriate to a multipolar world where other countries have nuclear weapons. It's too destabilizing. And so therefore, it is, is something I think that the United States could usefully trade away. Trade away, by that I say, you know, in most of my proposals, there's something to be traded for. On right. the other side of the ledger, in this case, is what um, anti-ballistic, or I'm sorry, anti-satellite systems, ASAT warfare, right? Right. I, or or uh, here I said ASBM, that, right? Yeah, I said that China has developed some weapons that that are really make Americans nervous. Uh, and here we have uh, the the ability to shoot down satellites. Of course, the United States has that ability too. 
And uh, yes, also this this so-called uh, ASBIM, the anti-ship ballistic missile, which really is a very revolutionary capability. China, to my knowledge, is the only country in the world that has that ability now, and, and it's very troubling and to the U.S. Navy for sure, the concept that China can hit really any surface uh, surface warships operating within a few thousand miles of China. I mean, that's a, a very a troubling capability and one that has the potential to alter the overall military balance. Uh, now, China, interestingly, has not tested the weapon overtly, at least. Uh, so... And has raised, you know, some some have questioned whether it exists. Although I think Chinese sources have have confirmed of late that the weapon does exist. Um, but what I'm arguing for is restraint on both sides. Look, we there's many avenues of military development that both sides could pursue, whether it's hypersonic weaponry or massive mil- uh, nuclear buildups. So one, one can imagine, you know, uh, weaponizing space. I mean, we could go down all of these roads, but this, we're talking about not just the possible, you know, this apocalyptic possibility of massive warfare, massively destructive warfare between the great powers, you know, possibly including uh, nuclear warfare, but also Put that aside for a moment and just consider trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars spent on these things, not on schools, not on green uh, power, develop, you know, renewable energy, uh, not on uh, new technologies that, that, you know, change our lives for the better, but on, you know, on, on uh, weaponry. So it, start, it starts to sound a lot like the 1960s or when, when uh, similar kind of uh, excesses very dangerous excesses occurred. Yeah. So I think, you know, hopefully our leaders are wise enough to avoid this, but there are signs all over the place that uh, kind of arms race is beginning to... uh... Um, Well, just on the the specific question of the um, anti-ship ballistic missile programs, I think I first read about um, something like this in a Tom Clancy novel where it was called The Assassin's Mace, I think. And then that when media reports emerged about this weapon, Jeremy, think, you read Tom Clancy. I read everything, Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there were um, media reports about it, and I, to this day, and maybe you can help me. I don't understand why it's so difficult to hit a ship with a missile. I mean, <laughs> you can hit a terrorist with a drone a million miles away. What, what, what is special about this technology? Great question, uh, Jeremy. Yeah, let's see if we can clarify a little. It's there are. A lot of fearsome weapons that can destroy ships today. And I think, you know, uh, frankly, we would be having a very similar conversation even if there was no anti-ship ballistic missile. In other words, modern torpedoes, for example, devastating weapons, uh, add to that sea mines. And then, of course, as was demonstrated in the Falklands War in the, in the early 80s, uh, surface ships are very vulnerable to anti-ship cruise missiles, the famous Exocet uh, weapons, which showed just how destructive if the if the if the Argentinians had had hundreds of these weapons or even thousands I think the British fleet would have been completely destroyed and the Argentinians only had eight so anyway those are cruise missiles though okay kind of sea skimming uh, weapons that are are extremely lethal against ships but those are coming in at a speed generally the speed uh, often is um, just below the speed of sound so they're fast. Um, there is some chance for intercepts. Very difficult. Uh, now, by the way, those weapons are being uh, improved, and China actually wields a number of now a whole series of supersonic anti-ship cruise missiles. And now Russia has fielded the very first 
hypersonic anti-ship cruise missile. I believe the weapon, it's called Zircon. I think it, it comes in at Mach 6. So just imagine how difficult that is to intercept. But you asked about a different weapon that I ha- we haven't talked about, which is the anti-ship ballistic missile. So those are not sea-skimming cruise missiles. That's a ballistic missile. And what that means is it's coming in so much faster. Uh, and it's so much harder to uh, intercept. And that weapon will be coming in at, at something like Mach 6. And uh, my sense is that uh, although, you know, of course, as you might expect, our side is, is looking at all kinds of countermeasures. Uh, and yet, even those who, who really study the issue of ballistic missile defense find that it's almost in, impossible to uh, try to accomplish intercepts. So, you know, it, w- it will be very difficult to defeat such a system. Uh, and it can also operate at very uh, high ranges. So, in you know, the, the word game changer has been used. I think that's a bit strong because I think if you look at all of the weapons being employed by uh, by China or for or Russia, for that matter, in, in this so-called uh, anti-access strategy, I mean, look at them all holistically, you know, as, as a group. It is very formidable uh, system. But when you add the this so uh, so this as bim the anti-ship ballistic missile that that does increase i think the lethality and you know i i know some very respected naval strategists who have said things you know made the statement uh, at this college actually several years ago uh, the statement was made that you know maybe maybe this weapon the anti-ship ballistic missile makes surface ships obsolete uh, that's a pretty dramatic moment in, in world history. Now, you know, uh, f- fortunately, uh, wars between great powers haven't happened in a while. So there's a lot of unknowns, all kinds of unknowns, and not just in this area. But, you know, th- this is uh, the possibility that strategists are talking about, and it's something that has us very concerned. Things we'd prefer to leave unknown. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the reception that the book has had. Uh, are, are you sensing that your book has gained much by way of traction within the Beltway? And uh, what, if anything, are you finding that critics have uh, the hardest time swallowing? And uh, maybe related to that, what's your sense of, of the mood in D.C. now? I mean, anecdotally, I hear that, you know, even within more traditionally dovish bastions like Foggy Bottom in the State Department, uh, there has been kind of a hardening. W- what's your sense of this and, and how does this relate to how your book is being received? In general, I'm quite pessimistic, Kaiser. I, I think that Part of it is is fed by the um, a lot a lot of uh, turmoil in American politics overall. But I think that you know I don't hear a lot of of frankly uh, responsible discussion regarding China. I'm I'm always amazed that when China is discussed in American politics, it's discussed as a really an economic issue, a trade issue, and and that gets back to the point we made earlier that people's the issues people think about day to day are sort of bread and butter issues. And there are a lot of trade and investment issues that we need to discuss about China. And by the way, there is a chapter about that in the book. But I mean, but the book is much more about the security side, the relationship. But I mean, I want to emphasize that the most important issue in U.S.-China relations far and away is the imperative uh, to prevent great power war. The same is true with Russia. But this is, you know, maybe it's so obvious that people don't want to talk about it or, or the consequences of failure there are so grave that it's just uh, extremely unpleasant, which is which I think is very plausible. But I, I, this dearth of, of serious thinking about it is disturbing. And unfortunately, and part of it is I think our country is just distracted by so many other issues uh, in the Middle East and so forth that, that we're that 
precludes us from having serious conversations about strategy in the Asia-Pacific, but I do fear that the momentum for, as you put it, a kind of hardening of positions is is there. Uh, you don't have to look very hard to see it. Um, I, no, am, indeed. I, I, I must say I'm disappointed that I have not seen the growth of a kind of progressive viewpoint on China. That is, a, there's, you know, it is really difficult to find the people who are advocating for uh, either compromises or um, are working actively to promote a better relationship. But, you know, we, we can think of all kinds of reasons for this. But it is, I guess I'm, I'm sad to say that among the, call, call, for lack of a better word, I'll call it the blob. <laughs> right. Uh, that's that's, that's that, a that, good term for it. Yeah. What was the guy's name? The the, uh, the the White House opinion shaper who referred to the the foreign policy establishment as the blob. Yeah. I I well, know. having grown up in D.C., I think I can use the term with a little bit of uh, with a wink and some affection sure. for for uh, people who have to struggle with policy in that uh, in that uh, place. But the well, the blob would brand brand you with the A word, right? I mean, appeasement is 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 a word that one. Yeah, I mean, you actually kind of anticipate criticism along kind of A-word lines in your book. And, I mean, you even enlist the likes of Winston Churchill in defense of the kind of compromise that you have in mind. Uh, you know, it's freighted, right? I mean, you, you talk about compromise, and then you hear Neville Chamberlain, you hear Munich, you know, you hear Sudetenland. And, and you know, this is, this is a very unfortunate uh, extreme uh, position that, that that's taken against anyone who would seek any kind of of, of compromise along lines that you've suggested. Right. I think yes. That, I mean, sure. That is the um, point that is made over and over again. That one, you know, one couldn't possibly compromise with the kind of uh, government that China has. But um, you know, I I keep emphasizing again and again that that analogy is really fails uh, in these circumstances. I mean, we can take this at numerous levels, but, you know, start with the fact that it's a, it's a nuclear world. And in a nuclear world, you, there is really no choice but compromise, right? I mean, ultimately, we had to fight against Nazi Germany. But even at that point, you'd have to say that if Nazi Germany had had nuclear weaponry, that it also would have been a different uh, set of choices. But, you know, there's so many differences between the situations then and the situation today. But, uh, you know, I think uh, China is a it's a much different kind of country. Uh, sure, there's nationalism in China, but it's not at all the kind of militarized country that Germany was at that point. Uh, look at China's military spending, for example, uh, is, is, is much, much lower. Uh, but as, a, as a percentage of GDP. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, I mean, just come to the idea of intentions here. And I think this is crucial is that. Um, right. We were talking earlier. Then there's capabilities and there's intentions. Right. Right. And I mean, even in these scenarios in the South China Sea, for example, or in the East China Sea. Now, those are the two scenarios that I think certainly around where I work. That's what, you know, keeps the lights on late at night, as it were. Um, people are really concerned that they could get out of hand. But even in those scenarios, like if we try to imagine the very worst case, you know, nobody that and no serious strategist that I know thinks that China intends to invade and conquer, you know, the, the home islands of Japan or the major islands of the Philippines, like, you know, Palawan and Luzon or, mm -hmm. or Honshu and Hokkaido. I mean, now in the 1930s, you know, that's exactly what what Hitler Hitler wanted to do, and that was the kind of regime that they had, and and they were literally trying to conquer Europe and starting with Europe, and then go on to the rest of the world. Well, you know, we all know that those days have passed, and uh, 
you look at China's actions in so many situations, what you see is not uh, aggressive intent and an, and an idea that China would somehow want to conquer uh, other countries' territory. Quite the opposite. Uh, China's made all kinds of compromises on its borders. Uh, as Taylor Fravel laid out in his fine book, it shows that in in uh, the vast majority of cases, China has made compromises, generous compromises. But well, then, yeah, I, the I like territorial. Uh, I think it was something like seventy percent of, of of territorial disputes that have been settled have been settled with uh, in in favor of the opposite party or something. Right, and and even more than that, that China in negotiating with partners that are vastly weaker, like I take a country like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, and yet those countries are getting very favorable deals from a bilateral uh, settlement. So I mean, to me, that convey it shows. China's good intentions, and it shows that, that that we should give China the benefit of the doubt by all means. I would also point out that some people say, well, okay, maybe China doesn't want to conquer these countries, but it wants to control them. You know, let's look at some of the cases where of countries that have been very close to China, maybe too close. Look at the case, I think Myanmar presents a very interesting case. And here, I think China got burned badly, became too involved. Uh, and now people in Beijing are asking the question of, you know, what happened, all that money they invested, are they going to lose all that money? And, and uh, what should China, how should China respond to, you know, preserve its interests? But I, you know, I don't think China has the least appetite to kind of send in, you know, as it were, send in an airborne division to fix everything. No, there's no interest. In, and there are other cases, too, uh, you know, whether there's instability on China's borders, uh, say Kyrgyzstan or something like that, where China could plausibly, a great power with instability on its borders could plausibly, even even some Western experts suggested that it's China's responsibility to act, to use force, to bring order to these areas. And yet China has uh, resisted that. Would the country of Mongolia say, or, you know, these weak countries next to China, would they still exist if China had uh, such nefarious intentions along the lines of Hitler? So, of course, I think China's in a very different place. Uh, sure, there are parts of the Chinese regime that that uh, Americans um, find highly objectionable, find highly objectionable, and yet, and yet, we still need to uh, find a way to uh, to get along with China. You know, I, I often, when I'm in Washington, I tell people, you know, you don't, I'm not suggesting that we need to to like everything that China does or agree with it, and yet, we still have to find a way to work constructively with Beijing. In the time since the book was written, we've seen the USS Lassen and other ships uh, co conduct FONOPs, or Freedom of Navigation Operations, in the South China Sea in waters claimed by China. What do you make of the way that these uh, have been conducted? My appraisal of what's gone on in terms of the Freedom of Navigation patrols is that I think they've been rather restrained, actually. Um, uh, I know for a fact that the United States undertook similar patrols in the claimed waters of other claimants in the South China Sea, for example, waters claimed by Vietnam. I would also suggest that it's important at, at a symbolic level that, you know, these are generally a, one ship operating in that area, maybe two, but uh, I think it's it's important. Uh, they have not been, you know, uh, larger. So carrier group. <laughs> Right. And, and I mean, that's an important statement. I think the United States is trying to say, send a message by saying we will go where we think is, is appropriate in conformity with the law, but we are not looking to, uh, pick raise tensions right. or to pick a fight, as you said, Kaiser. So, um, so it, I think it's a reasonable approach. 
Look, there are some activities which I have criticized the the kind of very uh, kind of elevated surveillance posture, which I think needs to be reduced. And as I argue in my cooperation spiral for the South China Sea, one of the things I suggest is that perhaps the United States could take the, the difficult step to reduce our surveillance posture to some extent. Sure, that would come at a cost, but I think the gains would be there. And perhaps uh, to help the United States make that move, China could adopt a more kind of, um, I advocate in the book, several places in the book for China to increase its military transparency. One of the things I'd like to see China do is is for it to open up the uh, giant naval base on Hainan Island in Yalong Bay. It, it, it's really an enormous facility that has developed over the last decade. It, it will be, it will hold uh, nuclear submarines, aircraft carriers. Uh, you know, there's, there's a reason why many of China's neighbors uh, and some of the powers around the region, uh, Japan and so forth, are perturbed about this. Could China open up that base, at least to its ASEAN neighbors, to help reassure them? So what I'm saying is China takes a step toward transparency, and the United States could uh, look at that as, as a more, let's say, more in conformity with global um, norms, and therefore, re- again, as I've advocated, reduce that surveillance posture to some extent. And here I'm talking about the aircraft which are flying very frequently in in waters uh, proximate to China. Now, those are legal, uh, you know, and I I do think uh, by any interpretation those those, uh, flights are legal, but just because they're legal doesn't mean that they need to be undertaken at high frequency. That is, I do think they need to be continued to some extent, but the frequency of those surveillance uh, operations, I think, could be decreased. Hmm. By the way, there was a, if I might, there was a fascinating article recently in the, I believe it was in the Journal of Intelligence Studies by by an American analyst. And here's a, a forum where they discuss how intelligence should be done. And one of the interesting conclusions from one of these articles, it was an article that, I cite this in the book, but the article looked at uh, uh, surveillance flights in and around China through the very difficult period of the early Cold War in the 50s and 60s. And the major conclusion was that the, in the end, the foremost result of these, all these flights taking a look at China, trying to understand what was going on in China, was that this motivated China to develop a very advanced system of uh, air defense. So in other words, one of the major results of this intelligence posture was to have China arm itself in a much more robust way. It's the classic American lack of security dilemma sensibility. I mean, we just don't seem to understand how our behavior is interpreted by the other side, and we seem to have a blind spot to perception from the other side. Right, and if you go to the Military Museum in Beijing, you'll see very proudly displayed there uh, several, uh, well, lots of pieces of U-2 reconnaissance planes that were shot down mm. uh, during that period. So it's a, that's a sad reminder, but I think you're exactly right, Kaiser, that... Uh, this security dilemma needs to be foremost in our minds as we go about thinking about how to set up our defense posture in the Asia Pacific. So, Lyle, you, you position yourself in this book as some opposed to, as it turns out, somebody who was your mentor, actually your, your dissertation advisor uh, when you were a graduate student. I, I'm speaking, of course, about Aaron Friedberg that I think all of us have probably read. And you kind of put yourself a little bit closer uh, to Hugh White, whose uh, book, again, I think, Jeremy, have you read Hugh White's book? Uh, I have read many articles describing it, but I haven't actually read the book itself. I'm I'm curious. Do you see sort of any daylight between your position and Hugh White's position, or are you guys pretty much arguing precisely the same thing? It's a question close to my heart. I I thought Hugh White's book, China Choice, is so 
is so uh, compelling that I almost stopped writing my book at that point. <laughs> I think it's um, by far the, the most eloquent and most uh, hard-headed and concrete kind of description of the strategic challenge we face that I've seen. And, and I, one part of that book I, I uh, so love, and I commend it to you, Jeremy, you, this is a, a must-read. And for all your audience, is uh, at the end of that book, he's, he has a letter to President Obama. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and says you know this is or, or sorry it, it's not it, the letter is it's a speech that uh, White has written that what the speech would be like from the president to the American people laying out why the case for why uh, the United States has to share uh, global power with China and and it's really extremely compelling so yeah so as for daylight you know uh, it's amazing Hugh White and I, I I've seen him talk at a conference but we've actually never shaken hands uh, we've exchanged a lot of emails though and uh, we, there's not a lot of daylight I, I you know I don't know if he would say the same but we're we're quite agreed on. I think one one other aspect of White's uh, analysis, which is so important, is read his military analysis. I mean, he he uh, was very senior in Australian defense circles for uh, for decades, so he he really understands the the really at bottom the engineering, the geography. Uh, he gets it much better than most, and the way he describes it, I think, is is very important. Because that's, that's actually why I asked. I mean, because you both do have that that extensive experience with the military. I mean, you're both qualified to speak on this, and yet yet you arrive at uh, what's you know we probably wouldn't find more dovish positions. Very interesting. I, I wanted to ask one more question. It's, it's July now as we record, and the U.S. general election is coming up in November. Do you think do you think your ideas would be uh, taken more seriously and maybe have a higher chance of actual implementation under a Hillary Clinton administration? or a Donald Trump administration? Well, part of my, where I work at, at Naval War College, we um, encourage not to uh, dip our toe into uh, hot political debates. You know, I, I've seen somewhat encouraging signs, really, on, from, from both political camps. Secretary of State Clinton has affirmed many times that she thinks the U.S.-China relationship is so important, and, and so I, I think that's sincere. On the other hand, um, Trump, uh, you know, I, I realize he's gotten, there have been many critiques on the foreign policy side, as, as really uh, all around the spectrum, but I'm somewhat encouraged by his disposition toward um, bargaining and compromise. I mean, in a way, that is the essence of my book, is the, the idea that we have to bargain, we have to bargain hard, we have to, uh, but, but, it's, but diplomacy is give and take. It's not, it's not just, you know, here, here are all the boxes you need to check. Uh, that's not how diplomacy works. So, so I'm I'm modestly encouraged there. That said, you know, uh, you know, I am, I've also been found, um, you know, reason to worry really in in both candidates' positions. So, I think it's well known that that Secretary Clinton is, you know, there are many I think Chinese that think that she and her advisors have been too uh, uh, advocating more, um, you know, more aggressive aspects of the pivot. There are several examples one could think of, and then candidate Trump has made it quite clear that he's wants to take a much harder line on China in the economic sphere. Now, by the way, I, I think in some ways, some of that may some sort of, as it were, rebalancing in the trade relationship might be warranted given the trade deficit and so forth. But but I mean, we must realize that some of these trade tensions may well percolate into other spheres in a very dangerous way. So I think one has to be quite careful about how one goes about this. And uh, we don't want to... Um, you know, we have this relationship is of 
is of epical importance, and we need to treat it as such. And, and uh, I hope uh, as, as the candidates think through their positions more, they will um, think not just about domestic politics, but indeed how this uh, relationship is so, so critical to uh, global order uh, going forward to solving problems in the world. Well, thanks. Um, the book is Meeting China Halfway, How to Diffuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry. And if you find the ideas that it presents difficult to accept, that's all the more reason for you to read it. Lyle, we want to thank you again for making the time and hope you'll stick around with us to make some recommendations. Before we do, we want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. And now on to recommendations. Jeremy, as is our habit, you will begin. You will begin. I will begin. Uh, well, I've got two, and they're sort of relevant, I think, to this podcast. I think that if you've enjoyed our discussion today, you might find a book I'm about halfway through interesting. It's called America's War for the Greater Middle East, a Military History by retired Army Colonel Andrew J. Bakovich. I guess you pronounce his name. Basevich. Basevich. He was my oh, teacher. Ah, okay. He is a true genius. Well, fantastic book. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to read this. Um, and then I'd also like to recommend an odd film I found. If you are in the United States and have Amazon Prime, it's free. It was made by a French director whose name escapes me right now in 2007. And it's called uh, China and USA empires at war and it's it's kind of an old-fashioned documentary with a man with a british accent and then portentous music in between the uh, interviews with a bunch of different experts in the u.s and in china and it's just very interesting made in 2007 but it feels very fresh well definitely check that one out too it's on youtube you said no amazon prime on amazon uh, yeah amazon for prime, free okay. free oh for free though okay. only in the united states unfortunately for listeners ah. elsewhere in the world Okay, well, let's move on to you, Lyle. What do you have for us this week? Well, uh, Kaiser, thanks. I, I'm i going to um, recommend strongly the book with which I ended my book, and uh, you can get some idea that I feel strongly about this book. Um, it's, a, it's an old one, an oldie but a goodie, um, and it was made into a movie. Uh, the book is called uh, Sand Pebbles, and it's by Richard McKenna, it was uh, written way back in the early 60s. It's about uh, the U.S. Navy operating on the uh, inner waters of China set in uh, the 1920s, so a period of um, extreme uh, change and, and really chaos in China. But it shows you the extent to which uh, the United States was very involved in China from a very early point. Uh, and it's sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of U.S.-China relations. Uh, but I think it's very important that Americans grapple with that history in particular, uh, recognize U.S.-China relations did not start in 1979 or 1972, but uh, they go way, way, way back. Uh, there's a lot of history there. Uh, it's a reason, one reason why China comes to a lot of these issues with a chip on its shoulder. But we need to uh, grapple in some respect with this history, and this is a fantastic way. It also, I want to say, it, it shows some of the best of the cultural interaction between the U.S. and China, different strengths of, of both uh, cultures and how they interact in, in quite wonderful, occasionally quite awful ways, too. But it's, I think this is, an, uh, I'm going to call it essential reading for people in U.S.-China relations. Mm-hmm. Sand pills. I, I need to read that. I mean, after having read the excerpt with which you end the book. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, mine is a belated recommendation for The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixin, uh, which I finally got around to starting. I'm, I'm mostly through the first volume, which was translated by Ken Liu, and I'm very much looking forward to the, the, the volume two, which was translated by our friend Joel Martinson. So uh, I, I, I don't need anybody harassing me about how I should have read it in Chinese. I mean, I know I should have read it in Chinese. You should perhaps mention it's a science fiction, an award-winning science yeah, fiction. Yeah, it won the Hugo, Hugo Award, and uh, I can see why. It's, it's, it's really a striking bit of writing. It's, it's, it's really quite good. I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. Uh, anyway, thanks so much once again, Lyle. Uh, thanks, thanks very much to the Naval War College for having us here. Uh, that was uh, very, very generous of you. Jeremy, um, I think we're, we're going to come back, right? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it was a really pleasant drive up here from New York. Very pleased to welcome you, gents, back, and I enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you. We did too. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Lieutenant J.D. Christensen, to the U.S. Naval War College, and to Anla Cheng, Amadeo Tumululo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.